Welcome to another episode of Sweet Tea and Coffee. Uh, I'm sitting in here with uh, with my co-host, Blake Russell. And Blake, I have another friend of the pod. Okay, cool. To, to bring to the table. All well, right. I, we got to figure out what qualifies. I think there's a lot of folks wanting to know, what, do you, what does it take to be a friend of the pod? And we've <laughs> yeah, said we, the, the bar is pretty low. Yeah, we don't really have a lot of specifications <laughs> on what right. that is. That's right. We... Uh, so here, here's our friend of the pod for the day, uh, Sydney Hampton. Okay. So Sydney and Hunter uh, go to that, go to our church. Hunter's one of our new deacons. Uh, but Sydney said, and she gave me some feedback on Margie's uh, interview. All right. And she she talked about uh, just a few points in uh, in Margie's interview that really challenged her as a parent. That particularly the part where oh, yeah. Margie talked about holding uh, David accountable to the Holy Spirit after he became a Christian. Like, this is between you and yeah. the Lord, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to work in your life. And Sydney just said that was really encouraging to her as a parent. Now, here's the deal. So we're going to we're gonna give Sydney the uh, friend of the pod badge. Okay. But that's the only episode she's listened to. What? I, I know. Okay. So that's what yeah. I'm saying. Is that the bar? I don't know what the bar know. is. We're, Sydney, if you're going to listen to this, I hope you do now that you're a friend of the pod. Yeah. Sydney, if you listen to this, maybe check a few more episodes uh, off your yeah. list. And, uh, because, and then, because after today, we have 40. So, so there's Sydney, a lot of episodes to listen got, to. Yeah, you've got around 35-ish hours. Yeah. Maybe more. <laughs> Maybe more. No, we don't go an hour. <laughs> You've got a few hours to spend yeah. with sweet tea and coffee, but you're a friend of the pot. So anyway, that is a great example. I'm all kidding aside. That's a great example of the kind of stuff we want to hear. How's this encouraging you? Yeah. In what ways does your story interact with the stories that you've heard on this podcast? Sydney, thanks for, uh, for sharing that with us and others. Uh, let us know the same. We're going to get into the episode today, though. Uh, we've got Mark Clark here with us. Mark needs no introduction. You, uh, you all... Yeah. No, Mark you all know Clark, him. and uh, and uh, he, his story is uh, first of all, Mark is a dear friend of Blake and I's, and uh, has been just kind of one of these one of these people that's been a constant encouragement mm-hmm. in our life and ministry, and has been at this church since uh, since conception. Yes, not of the church. Uh, no, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, we're going to get into Mark's story, and Mark just has such a cool perspective on this church and what God's doing here, and uh, and and his life. Maybe some interesting facts that you may not know about Mark Clark. Stick around for this episode. All right, so I said we've got Mark Clark in here with us. Mark, thanks for uh, thanks for stopping by, coming sure. and hanging out at the podcast. You said that you've you've listened to a few, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. Mark's officially a friend of the pod. Yeah, welcome along. Mark uh, is one of our elders here, and as I said in the show opener, uh, Mark and and his family go way back into the history of Fredonia Hill, and uh, so. It'll be cool to talk to Mark today just about his story and uh, the way and in, uh, in ways in which God has worked in his life. Uh, but also, Mark has a cool perspective on the history of the church. So, Mark, you are a uh, native to Nacogdoches. I am a B-I-N. That's right. B-I-N. B-I-N. It's an elite group of people. That is so, right. So, <laughs> your, your uh, mom and dad the same? Were they born and raised here? How did yes. your family get to Nacogdoches? Uh, I think by covered wagon. Yeah. yeah. Some. We came and, together. Yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, Daddy always said uh, his side of the family was riding quite fast on horseback. Uh, coming from the east when they trying hit the Sabine to, River. Trying to escape somebody. Yeah. Trying to, you know, he said, don't look too far up the family tree. So, yeah. you know. so, so Mark came uh, through a band of outlaws yeah. to, uh, to Nacogdoches. That's right. As did a lot of Texans. That's right. As did a lot of Texans. That's right. That's right. Well, wow. So, okay. So your family then has been here. Uh, quite a long time. What did your, uh, your what, what did your dad do? This is I, this is maybe kind of one of these interesting Mark Clark facts that a lot of people might know. But uh, but what was life like for you growing up as a kid in Nacogdoches? Oh, my life just really centered around my parents and their business. We were we had a small meat packing plant out on the south side of town. That was just a we just grew up in it. Me and my sisters, we just grew we grew up working. Uh, we grew up hunting and fishing, as me especially with my dad, and doing those things, and still carry on those traditions with my kids even today. Both my uh, son and my daughter both hunt and fish, and uh, so we just we do those things. But life was really centered around uh, probably two things, and that was church and work. Yeah, and those were the two main things that we did on a day in and day out business or day in day out basis was church and work and that was that was the center of of our life together as a family and the family centered around those those things wow take us through this is interesting to me because i just recently uh, have been reading quite a bit about uh eugene peterson and and his family uh were, was in the meat packing business, and so he grew up. Mm-hmm. I believe it was his. I believe it was his dad. Now I'm on the spot, maybe saying some wrong things, but I think it was his his dad that was a that was a butcher, and so he grew up in uh, in that world. Yeah. And some of his stories, he talks about just how his dad was really a central person in the community yeah. because of that work, and yeah. how his you know he became a pastor, and he really started to understand the meaning of what a congregation was by the the butcher shop yeah. and watching the hmm. way in which his dad was a central figure in the in the mm-hmm. uh in that business was really formative for him so it, it was interesting what was life i mean what was that like to grow up in that uh, in that context? You said it was work and church, and so I imagine you spent a lot of time in your dad's world oh yeah what what was that like? Bring us into that. Well, uh, as far as work goes, we uh, uh, the service that he rendered to especially the local farmers and ranchers uh, was a, an essential service back then mm-hmm. uh, because people raised their own livestock to feed their families, things like that. My dad was the first one to ever um, have uh, what we used to call a locker plant. So we had uh, a place on North Street. It's in that building where the Landmark Center is now Mm. on North Street. And he had part of that building and uh, had a big, large walk-in freezer so that people could store stuff. Because back then, if you had a freezer at home, generally they were real small, very, very small. So if you had a, a hog butchered or you had a calf especially butchered or even garden vegetables this time of the year we're all planting gardens and doing stuff and harvest off of those 
he had a place where you could rent what we call drawers and they would hold about 50 60 pounds of meat or wow. vegetables and stuff and then you could come ever so often whenever you needed to you could come up there and you had a key he had a master key and you had a key to yours and where nobody else could get into your stuff and you could mm-hmm. go in there and get what you needed maybe for a week or two at home and then store that at home but you could go back and forth up there to the locker plant and get what you needed wow and that was before you had a lot of um, like say home refrigeration and people had a lot of appliances in their home they just had basic stuff right, we're yeah. talking about late 40s early 50s when all that so he kind of pioneered uh, a lot of that here and, wow and provided those services and then he was in the slaughtering end of the business too so he he we would take one all the way from if you called him and you said i got two or three calves pinned up in the pen we'll see would you come pick them up and we'd head out in the country and go pick them up in a trailer bring them back to the plant we'd slaughter them and do the whole nine yards cut them up we'd take a thousand pound calf and or yearling and put him in one pound packages eventually wow so you could <laughs> you could eat him <laughs> my goodness see did the whole thing start to finish oh yeah we did it all well what, i mean so and you're along for the whole ride i mean that's oh yeah 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 time i'm four or five years old i'm hanging out with daddy all the time I'm in the pickup with him, going wherever he was going, doing whatever he was doing. Go to the sale barn. Back then, we had one auction barn here, and that was on Fridays uh, down on uh, South Street. And that was a big event because men from all over, all over the county and different surrounding counties came in to market their cattle and their hogs and then buyers would be there my dad was one of the buyers so every friday was spent hanging out down at hmm. Patton livestock commission company and uh sit there and and watch cattle sell hog sell all day long daddy buying what he needed and and uh but you're talking about the congregational mm-hmm. aspect of mm-hmm. all that See, Dad built friendships with these people. I mean, they trusted him because they were entrusting him with something that they had raised. It was their animal. So they trusted that once they dropped it off to his pens or we picked them up and they went into our pens, that those animals were – we had a tagging system and everything with numbers and also we could keep up with them. But – they trusted him all through the process that he was going to be able to deliver the final product. We didn't control it on the front end. We didn't control what they brought in. We could only work with what they brought. But if they brought us a quality animal in, they were going to get a quality meat product back, and it would always be theirs. That was something that was always real. They wanted to make sure they got their calf back, Mm -hmm. their hog back. So – I watched that, and that really formed a lot of my business life even today, Hmm. is that people are entrusting you with something. Hmm. You build the bond of trust. 
And, of course, at the basis of everything that dad and mom did, my mom was always integral to the business. She was the bookkeeper. She was the secretary. She she did everything. She did everything from keeping the home and the kids and all of us, taking care of all of us, to working with daddy in the business and taking care of all those things. My mother was an excellent bookkeeper, high attention to detail, you know. Daddy, that was not daddy's suit. <laughs> daddy was more like, we're going to get up and we're going to go today, and here's what all we got to do, and let's get it. You know, and we just went from can to cane. But uh, mother was always very integral. But both of them taught me and taught my sisters, you take care of the customer because they practiced Christian business principles. Mm-hmm. That was – it was nothing that they had to really think about. It was very natural to them that the scriptural perspective of how a man is to be honorable yeah. in the community. Your name, my dad always was very um, – uh, he taught us the importance of your name. Your name meant something hmm. in the community. And I still run into people. I have a lot of – I'm six, as successful as I am in my business, in the insurance business today, because people knew my dad. Hmm. Wow. And they trusted my dad. And they knew my mother. And they trusted my mother. And they knew the kind of people that they were. And so I think that has uh, made me – into much of the man that yeah. I am today is because they taught me those guiding principles that at the basis of everything you're representing the Lord in the world, they know that you're a Christian. You don't do anything to impugn that reputation. Mm-hmm. You be careful about everything that you do and make sure that your dealings, especially in business, that you're always above board and you're always honest with people and bend over backwards to to help somebody. My daddy would help anybody. Hmm. I mean, I I can't tell you the number of times I've seen him uh, provide for people that didn't have food. Mm -hmm. He didn't believe in wasting anything, neither did my mother. Uh, Dad was born in 1918. Mother was born in 1923. They were children of the Depression. yeah. They, that, that was the life that they knew. Hmm. So you didn't waste anything. Mm-hmm. I often tell people I didn't – I thought that <clears throat> it, that uh, uh, a glass – here's the way it was at my house. <clears throat> if you went to the cupboard to get a glass to get you a drink of milk or water or whatever, there was two sets of glasses in the cupboard. There was one set that was used only from when company came – Mm-hmm. Or Sunday dinner. Mm-hmm. That was the good stuff. Okay. Otherwise, you drank out of the Bama jelly jar that mother had <laughs> washed out, cleaned, and that was your everyday dish. Because if you dropped that and broke that, then we were good because we was going to buy some more Bama right. jelly. Yeah. You know, so jars were, <laughs> we're going to have a glass, you know. So, I mean, that's just the way that they were. Very frugal people. You don't waste anything. And if you can help people, you help them. If they're really in need, 
you make sure you meet their need as best you can. Mm-hmm. Try to help them. Well, I, I love hearing just that even at the very beginning of your life, you were you were seeing their faith play its way out. Oh yeah, into the way that they were living. Yeah, you didn't. There wasn't a division. What you were observing was not a division between who mom and dad were at church Mm-mm. and who they were in the community. You saw those no. worlds very, very connected, and that had a tremendous impact on you. Oh yeah. Where I mean, where did that start for them? Were they? I mean, were they new in the faith? Were they raised that way? How did they get to the point where? those worlds, their following of Jesus was woven completely into their life. Do you? My mother was really raised in church. Uh, my, my grandfather, his name was Will Fazell, and he, he was a, a music director hmm. on the side. I mean, he sold mm-hmm. Closed for Bell's department store right. and for Mai's department store for many, many years. Had a furniture store at one time. But uh, also, he would lead the singing. Yeah. You know, on Sundays, mm-hmm. like we used to do. Yeah. Lead yeah. the singing. So that was at First Baptist Church. Okay. okay. So whenever Fredonia Hill was beginning to start under a brush arbor out here, mm-hmm. on Sunday afternoons, he would come out here. And, and lead the singing for the service right. that they were host out here on the hill on Sunday afternoons and in the early part of the church. He was always a member of the First Baptist Church, but he helped to start the ministry here at Fredonia Hill. My mother was just part of that. Mm. My mother learned to play the piano. She played the piano in church and was always in the choir and things like that and taught Sunday school. I think that's where I get my love for teaching Sunday school was from my mother. She probably taught Sunday school for, I don't know, 50 years wow. or more. Um, not just children, but especially adult women's Sunday school. Um, she learned to play the piano, she told me, on a little uh, uh, miniature Mm-hmm. piano that they used to have a little keyboard hmm. probably just started with middle c and right went up, maybe yeah. one or down yeah a couple you know, octaves not just very a couple far. octaves yeah. not very and, and she, her daddy taught her how to read music he knew how to read music so he would draw the the letter of the music mm-hmm. as a, a b or c or whatever yeah on the key told her how to make that chord and everything, and that's how she learned wow, to play really piano cool. at like five, six, seven years old. You know, and of course, she learned playing church hymns. That's yeah, what they yeah. they learned on. Yeah, and uh, and Granddaddy used to Blake. He used to uh, go around the countryside too, and do uh, uh, music schools. Hmm. I forget what they called that. Uh, it may come to me later, but anyway, they taught people how to harmonize. Yeah, they taught harmony. They taught some reading and mostly shape note mm-hmm. music. Yeah, and taught yep. people how to sing and how to sing in church. Yeah, you know that's interesting. I was thinking about this actually this morning on the, on the way, uh, just as I was thinking about songwriting for the church, and um, I was thinking about that time period when my grandmother passed away. We found. Uh, she was a musician, and we found a bunch of old hymnals and things mm-hmm. like that in there. And in some of those hymnals, I have—I think it's like a great uncle or some relative that 
he had he'd written songs for hymnals, you know, yeah. but it wasn't like it was this, you know, his his main profession. He still had a oh, yeah. a normal day job, but he was just an every get everyday guy that yeah. was a part of the church and said, I could do this. You know, and sure. I, I loved how the process, the creative process for the church mm-hmm. in that time period was the actual church. It was just folks that were in it together. Yeah. And it wasn't somebody, you know, in Nashville or Los Angeles yeah. sending them things that they need to be singing or, you know, whatever. Yeah. It was just whoever would step up. So yeah. it's interesting to hear you talk about that, that, yeah. that you've got that same yeah. uh, in your line. Yeah, and, and they, they said on Sunday afternoons, that's what they did. Yeah. They would go out in the countryside. They might go out to Cushing. Yeah. Or they might go to Garrison mm-hmm. or someplace, and they'd teach these what they called a singing school to teach people right. how to yeah. sing in church and how to harmonize and four three part and four part harmony. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, you mentioned you mentioned the the beginning right there. Yeah. So right there in your uh, in your family was a part of this is the beginning of Fredonia Hill, and mm-hmm. you mentioned the Brush Arbor beginning. Um, take us into that. I mean, so. Uh, Fredonia Hill is a, a plant mm-hmm. uh, from First Baptist, right? And uh, and began as a brush arbor, and uh, we can we can go from there. But but talk about based on your understanding, what what was the reason? Uh, I understand that it was a it was a group of women that uh, that really felt the need for there to be a church uh, here uh, mm-hmm. on this part of town. Talk about the shape of Nacogdoches at that time, and uh, and why First Baptist felt like there there needed to be a church out here. Yeah, they were really establishing three or four churches, uh, all pretty close together. There would have been Fredonia Hill, what would later be Calvary Baptist Church, which would be on the east side of town. Then there was another Baptist church called West Side Baptist Church on the west okay. side of town, of course. Mm-hmm. You had you had uh, uh, First Baptist that was central; it was downtown, mm-hmm. and then you already had the Old North Church, which was a Baptist okay. church yeah. out on the north end of things. So, what we don't understand today is that if you lived four or five miles from downtown, you lived quite some distance. Mm-hmm. Usually, you had to walk it. Or maybe you had one car in a household, right? Mm-hmm. And they could get to town, you know, in that one car. So uh, they were trying to establish kind of on the outskirts of town because town really, uh, the south end of town really stopped up here at Fredonia Street, where mm-hmm. it crosses right. uh, South Street up yeah. here. So that was so. This was on the edge. We're on the south end of that. There was nothing out here. My dad said that when he built the plant out there where he did, uh, which is now off of the uh, southeast loop. Of course, the loop wasn't there then either. But everything from where the church is all the way out to where the loop is now was nothing but pastures. Wow, dairy, a couple of dairies, and yeah. stuff like that. It was just cattle. Hmm. you know, out here. So there had begun to be a little bit of building 
around here, like back on Hackberry right, Street some and some of these older neighborhoods that are around us now. Yeah. And so some of that was beginning to be built up, and they felt like they needed to get a church that was central to those communities. This was called Fredonia Hill Community right. here. So this was kind of like a, a little a little community, like we'd have Central Heights right, today yeah, or something yeah. like that. I think that's important for people to recognize, because one of the things you hear a lot when people visit here, and I think you're going to see this in a lot of different rural communities, is they go, wow, there's a lot of churches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're overwhelmed by the yeah. amount of churches, and they think, well, that seems silly. And it does. It, I mean, if that were what we were doing right now, yeah. Then that would be silly yeah. because of the way that transportation works. But I think that's really important perspective that in a community that is this old, a mm-hmm. rural community that is that is this old, some of what you see is is the product of a yeah. totally different era. Yeah. Where like Mark's saying, four or five miles would have been a tremendous commute to make on a oh, on yeah. a weekly basis. These were even though the, I mean it's just a few miles, these were separate communities and for the most part people stayed within yeah. those communities. So a lot of what you see was really a missional effort to mm-hmm. reach sections of the community that maybe didn't have any sort of uh, of church presence. Yeah, they really wanted some churches that uh were within walking distance of people. Yeah. That was a big deal. You needed to be with them one or two miles of where they were living hmm. so that they could easily walk to church on a Sunday morning. Right. Yeah, that's I, that's just – I think that's important. You do hear that all the time. There's so many yeah. churches. Like, okay, you got to think about yeah. oldest town in Texas, like where, where this all right. began. Yeah. And, yeah. Mark, take us into uh, the, uh, the kind of evolution of, of your faith journey. Uh, it was obviously something that – in terms of you being exposed to the gospel and seeing Christian discipleship really play out right in front of you, something that you were inundated with. You laugh. I've heard you tell a story before that you were attending Fredonia Hill in the womb. I mean, yeah. oh, and yeah. you've been here You've been here the entire time. Yeah. So it's always been something that was front and center for you in yeah. your home. And um, But how does that then uh, become your own? I mean, it, at what point do you begin to own your faith, and what are the what are the circumstances that that led to that? Yeah, well, yeah, like you're saying, I was exposed to to uh, the gospel at the earliest of age, um, so it was not a matter of exposure because I I got exposed every Sunday morning and every Sunday night and every Wednesday night, and I <laughs> went to. Brotherhood meetings, and I attended WMU meetings that my mother had. You know, I, I was in everything, so it wasn't about exposure, but it was about owning my faith. So I can't. I, I made professional faith when I was ten years old. Um, uh, it was on July the fourth. I was ten years old. Uh, Dad and I were out in the garage. Uh, either getting ready to go on a fishing trip or maybe Hmm. we'd gotten back and we were cleaning up from a fishing trip or something. But a lot of my life in the summertime (laughs) centers around fishing. Yeah. But (laughs) in the winter centers around deer hunting. So uh, anyway, we're out there uh, cleaning up that boat, and Daddy was just talking to me, been talking to me. And and he told me, he said, I could tell uh, that you were under 
conviction. Yeah, you know that the Lord was dealing with you. Questions that I'd had of late, mm-hmm. you know, uh, over the past few months, probably, and things like that. And He just asked me. He just flat out asked me. He said, "Son, you do you want to be saved?" He said, do you want to trust the Lord as your Savior? And I just broke down and said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I need to. Wow. And uh, we knelt down beside that boat, and I got saved in the garage. Man. <laughs> Man. And uh, I made it known to the church the following Sunday. You know, I walked the aisle, but— the salvation had already yeah. taken place, and then I was baptized a few weeks later. But uh, hmm. anyway, so that's ten years old, and I, you know, did all the typical things that church kids do and deacons' kids do, and that is get into trouble with the other deacons' kids, <laughs> and the, the pastors' kids, and uh, everything else. Not not too bad of trouble, but we, you know, being boys. So uh, anyway, we did that kind of stuff, and and uh, I always knew uh, that I was saved from that time forward. I didn't have any real issues with doubting my salvation, but I probably I would say that I really didn't come into owning my faith until I was in my mid twenties hmm. uh, to where. I knew that uh, to follow the Lord was a real, um, it was very special, but it also meant that I had to follow, Hmm. that it was not Hmm. just a matter of uh, getting my fire insurance policy so that it didn't go to hell, but it was also a matter that I had to... uh, come into real relationship with the Lord. And so uh, so I did. I began to follow more. And inter- being integral to my following of him was my being early on being cast as a role uh, in teaching. Uh, people recognized that I had a gift for teaching, um, and so that became paramount. And my hmm. studying, getting prepared to teach, and those things really helped to propel my faith and making my faith my own and understanding the Word and understanding the depth of hmm. it, you know. Mark, let me ask you a question. Was it more, when you talk about kind of that transition and of following, was it more that you recognized the need for obedience? Was it more in practical things or was it more realizing the, the, the depth of relationship that was available to you with, with Jesus? So was it a relational depth or was it a practical obedience sort of thing that, that really needed to take place? I think it started as very practical obedience. Okay. What I, what I should be doing, what I ought not to be doing became, uh, to the real forefront, and I'd mm-hmm. make decisions about my life and what I was going to do and how I was going to lead. And by that time, I think uh, you know I was 23 years old when we got married. How I was going to lead in the home, uh, what was going to be central to our home, what was yeah. going to be important 
in our home. And fortunately, I married a very good Christian woman that helped me to ground myself yeah. a little bit. You know, you guys may or may not, you have, guys been, may or yeah, may not yeah. have had that experience. <laughs> but <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> she helped to really, you know, help me to realize that uh, faith is central, church is central, mm-hmm. following the Lord is central. So we've always done that together, which I think has made it a lot easier yeah. than a lot of people have in their life. It's not their their experience, and uh, but I realized that uh, the first steps I think were just about practical obedience, mm. and then from practical obedience and a learning to obey the Lord, and then really getting into His Word and learning His the Word. Mm. That's what really brought the relationship aspect more to the to the forefront hmm. see I, I surrendered to ministry in another church uh, when I was about probably about 20 or 21 years old and I answered the call to ministry but I told the congregation at that time I said no my call to ministry is not to pastor the church I knew that it's not, not to be a pastor yeah. or something like that my call is within the church. My call is to is for uh, teaching. My call is for administration. That's I knew that that's what my call was mm-hmm. on my life. But I answered that call. Of course, the first thing that everybody tries to do or did back then—it's not so much practice now—is you got to get licensed to preach because you're going to end up being a pastor. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, no, that's. That's not not my call, hmm. and uh, hmm. but anyway, I submitted to that, and so I got the sheepskin. And that, you know. <laughs> so I'm good to marry you and bury you. That's right. So so we're good on that. But uh, uh, you know that was never my calling. Uh, I'm doing what I'm called to do in church right now, hmm. and and I've known that yeah. and known that for a long time. But that the relationship aspect, I think, for most people, uh, it kind of works like this: that it starts with very practical steps, and then as you mature and you get into the Word and you have a love and a greater understanding yeah. for the Word, then the relationship begins to flourish, and yeah. it just takes time yeah. for that to take place. You know, yeah, man, that's interesting because one of the things that I think when I talk to people about and this is a question that comes up all, all the time mm-hmm. is, you know, what am I supposed to be doing as I open the Bible and read? What, what am I supposed to get out of it? And I think a lot of people, what they, on a, on a surface level, what they're looking for is this is a book that's going to tell me what to do. And in many ways, for sure, the Bible can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can discern from the scriptures, things that we ought to do, things that we ought not to do. And, sure. and, uh, but but if that is the depth yeah. at which we approach the scriptures, it's gonna it's gonna stay pretty shallow. Yeah. And one of the questions that I I've tried to start asking people as they as they read is is to kind of in the back of your mind as you read, be kind of asking yourself this question: Is, is what is what I'm reading telling me about who God is? Mm-hmm. And if that kind of sits in the background, then what you're aiming at there is you're aiming at understanding and discerning the character of God, yeah, who he is 
and who he is is in every passage. Right. Uh, and from who he is, we understand who we are. And But if that kind of is in the background, then what you're aiming at there is you're aiming at relationship. You're yeah. aiming at character. You're aiming at, again, discerning who he is. And that is a deeper thing yes. than just what to do. And actually, the more what, what I think I found in my life is that the more that I know who he is, the better I am able to discern what to do. Yes, absolutely. Has that been? I mean, I don't yeah. know. Speak to that a little bit. No, that is that is exactly the case. You know, <clears throat> my level of obedience now is not predicated on uh, understanding just the doctrine or understanding just the theology. Now, in the beginning, when I was learning and studying, that's what I was getting. Sure. Because that's what I was regurgitating, more or less, is the correct doctrine, the correct theology, all these, the correctness, right? But when the relationship begins to take over and you begin to understand the depth of that and what that means in light of Mm -hmm. whatever it is that the Lord is causing you to discern at that time what you're the spirit of the lord is talking to you about in the word then your level of obedience is not about the correctness it's about the honoring of what you've learned and you see the character transformation Mm -hmm. that is taking place in your own life as you submit Mm -hmm. to what you have learned yeah yeah and that is the key is that word submission. Nobody likes it, especially as men. We fight it. We don't want it. Uh, You know, we like to read that over uh, the women, you know, (laughs) when we read from Corinthian letters, you know, about wives submit yourselves and all that, you know. But he talks first to the men, doesn't Mm -hmm. he? Mm -hmm. So it's about the men and their relationship with the Lord. And then – if the wife submits to you, she's going to submit to you because you become a more godly man. Mm-hmm. So, so it's it's all of that understanding, and I, and I, um, you know, the Lord has really uh, worked on me a lot, uh, even in the past couple of years. I've had some real struggle, uh, even in my business. Uh, with uh, production, my business is all about production, hitting goals, hitting sales goals and numbers and all this kind of stuff. And so you can get lost in that mm. after a while. And I've been at it almost 18 years. So you can get real lost in that stuff, and it'll begin to take a toll on you. Mm. Even spiritually, it'll take a toll on you yeah. because you're trying to uh, – have some kind of performance level in the eyes of men so that men will Hmm. reward you and think well of you and Hmm. and all of that. And so the Lord really has taken me through a two-year process of really stripping me down Hmm. back to the basics of, you know, even my faith in my business because I've always conducted myself as a Christian businessman. I've Mm -hmm. never – hid that people right. that know me and work with me <clears throat> yeah they know that i'm a follower of christ they know that you know uh, my life is marked in certain ways and and all of that 
And I get a lot of opportunity to minister to people in my business, too. But uh, at the same time, you can get lost in all of the human struggle within the business, Mm. and you forget to have faith in the Lord that he's going to see you through in your business, that he's going to provide for you. And so one of the ways that he has done that is uh, a couple of series ago, uh, we were in uh, t- learning about uh, the series with Elijah in Sunday school. And that part of the story where Elijah's had that great uh, conflict with the prophets of Baal and has overcome them and everything, you know, he calls down fire from heaven. Mm-hmm. The Lord brings fire from heaven actually and consumes the everything. And then he gets a word from Jezebel, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So Jezebel's, I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. That's all it took. Mm-hmm. So he runs out into the desert mm. and he's fleeing for his life and he's there under the bush and he's about to burn up from the scorching desert heat. And God, why don't you just come kill me? Mm. You know, why don't you just, just take my life? You know, See, this woman's going to kill me. I just know it. And the Lord says, Essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he just says, just be quiet. Just be quiet. And he, so he, he takes him, and where does he go? He takes him down to the brook, Kidron. He says, remain here. Just stay right here. Be quiet. And, uh, and I'm going to take care of you. So what does he begin to do? He sends the ravens. Brings the food. Never too much, Mm -hmm. but always enough. Just when he needs it. From the most unclean animal that a Hebrew would ever expect to get provision from and should by all rights, um, religious on a religious basis, should have rejected what they brought him. But that was the Lord's means means of providing for him. And so the Lord taught me through that, he says, you need to get still, and you need to trust me. Hmm. And I'm going to bring you what you need. Now, that doesn't mean I don't work for it, because I do. And you got to get up, and you got to go every day, and you got to work, and you got to service your clients and take care of their needs and all of that. But <clears throat> if we're people of faith, and that means we're people of faith on Sunday and Monday. Yeah. So we've got to exemplify that and understand the Lord's going to meet my needs, whatever they are. He's going to take care of me, and he's going to take care of my family, and he may do it through some very unusual means. But we got to be still, and we got to be where he puts us, wherever that is. If it doesn't make sense or not, it doesn't matter. We stay where he puts us, and then we stay there till he says, get up and go. Hmm. Go somewhere else. I'm going to provide another way. So that really helped to recenter me, hmm. even in my business life, to be to trust him that we're talking about uh, our level of relationship with the Lord. So this brings me into much closer fellowship with him. Because now 
when I see him, when, I, when, when a new customer comes to me, whether they're coming to me because they've been recommended to me by somebody else or it just comes out of the blue, the first thing that I do is I thank God. Hmm. You sent them. You sent them. Yeah. Somehow, some way, you sent them to me. That changes how hmm. I take care of them, hmm. right? Yeah. Because, see, that's God's gift to me. They are God's gift to me. So he's brought them to me for some reason. Sure, I can help meet their physical needs, their insurance needs, and help take care of them, but there may be opportunity for me to be able to minister to them down the road. And that happens a lot when people have calamities in their life, when we get right. tornadoes and big storms, mm -hmm. when I'm that, delivering yeah. a, a, a death claim mm -hmm. to somebody that's a beneficiary of a life insurance policy, I get to meet with those people, I get to talk with those people, I get to share with those people and have some and build some real relationship hmm. with them. Wow. And uh, so, but that's just the Lord using the very most practical side of life to really help me to understand and fulfill some of the most spiritual mm -hmm. side of my life. Mm -hmm. And for me to understand that the two are intertwined, they're not separated, there's not this over here or that over there, <clears throat> it all works together. He's put me where he he has me where he wants me. Yeah, and I need to stay there where he wants me, and also in that to learn to be satisfied with what he provides, hmm. the way that he that he decides to provide it. Uh, because again, my life, my business life can be very goal oriented push here push there get this number attain this get that but when i settle down and understand that the lord's making the provision in the business and he's bringing it to me for some reason then uh, my whole perspective about it of about everything changes and now i can be happy and I can be satisfied. That doesn't mean get lazy. You don't right. get lazy, but you can be satisfied with the provision of the Lord. And it mm. begins by saying thank you mm. every time he provides because that's the initial recognition of where it came from. Mm. Then when you realize where it came from, it's uh, – relationship with people and the relationship in your business and how your business even works is very mm. different but i learned that from my mom and dad mm. yeah but it took me 40 years <laughs> wow. on my own in business yeah. to really make it my own yeah, yeah. see and I, I think we want to a lot of time take from somebody else's experience and make that experience mine mm -hmm. so that I immediately have moved to the level that they are at now. Yeah. But what we don't want to do is go through the wilderness for 20 or 30 years. Right. Yeah. yeah. To where we really learn it mm -hmm. on our own. Mm, and it's good. ours and yeah. our faith is ours. And how I obey the Lord, that's mine. And my relationship with Him is paramount above all other things. Mm. 
Well, I appreciate that Sunday school lesson right there. Yeah, yeah, that was was fantastic. (laughs) Uh, But you did mention provision, and I do. I know we've gone a little bit longer, but I Mm -hmm. I do want you to tell one story. Okay. Before we wrap up, because this is one of my favorite stories, I was in the ceiling uh, of the zone, the room we call the zone, the other day, uh, because that room is a black hole of Wi-Fi. We experienced that (laughs) on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago, and Mm -hmm. I was trying to get some better signal in there. And as I was in there, I ran across the uh, very, very thick wooden walls of that building. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know, most people may not realize this, but that particular room was the first, aside from the Brush Arbor you mentioned, the first structure that this church used. And there's a really cool story about how that building came about Mm -hmm. that I've heard you tell several times. And so I'd love for you to, to tell that story on here. Okay. So John and Viola Brantley were a couple in our church uh, that my dad and actually John were business partners for several years, okay. and he really helped to get my dad started in the in the meat business and so forth. And uh, John and Viola, uh, when I knew them even as a kid, they were probably in their early 60s, pushing 70 by then. Yeah. And uh, so anyway – John and Viola started attending church out here, as I understand it, when it was still a brush arbor. Okay. So they needed to, the church was going to build a building, needed a permanent structure. So they uh, had, I guess John had bought a track of timber somewhere Mm -hmm. or bought some land, and that's typically what people did back then. You bought some land and it had trees on it, it had pine timber or oak timber on it. And then you would uh, cut that, and then you'd have it milled into lumber, and you build your house mm-hmm. instead of just going to a lumber yard. So that's what John was in the uh, was about doing. Right, was getting all that put together because he and Viola were going to build a house. And so it had come up that the church, the congregation at that time, wanted to build a building, didn't have any money. You're talking about people. This is in the Late twenties, early thirties, yeah. pre World War Two, getting maybe post Depression era, or maybe even still in the in the Depression, I guess. And so they decided they decided uh, to have the lumber milled that they were going to build their house out of, and they he had the logs delivered to a, uh, a sawmill, and. Uh, Told the man that owned the mill, said, uh, whatever the carpenters are going to build a church, whatever they need, you just mill it out of my hmm. what my stockpile wow. there. And so they gave, they actually gave away their home hmm. to the church. So And they put off building a, a, their own house for many years before they were ever able to build a house for themselves. Yeah, and that, that. and that timber... Yeah, that from it's their still in first there. house is still is oh, still yeah. in there. That's just that, that's in, that's incredible uh, to think about that generosity as a as a beginning point for even this this church. I want to I want to close this segment. Yeah, because we're going to have to come back. Yeah, <laughs> um, I want to close this segment with an image. When we take people through premarital counseling, one of the things that we go through is we talk to to men about. Uh, being a spiritual leader in your home is often a very intimidating thing to think yeah. about. And I know that that, that idea of what does it mean to be a spiritual leader in my home? I'm just trying to figure out 
what following Jesus even looks like and much less lead. And it can be a very overwhelming, very intimidating thing. And one of the things that we talk about is we talk about one of the, one of the primary ways that you lead in your home is by allowing God's principles uh, that we glean from scripture to uh, lead, direct, and inform my workaday world, my practical everyday living. Yeah. And that your family sees you demonstrate biblical principles in the world in which you right. live every, you know, you don't have to become a great theologian. No. Uh, but that being a leader is about practically walking in the principles that God gives and that that's number one. And then, and then number two is, are you having an intentional conversations uh, with your wife and with your kids mm-hmm. about the Lord, about what he's doing, about what he's, how he's leading them. And I just want to just men, I mean, just if you're, if you're men, if you're listening, women, if you're listening, send this episode to your men. <laughs> um, but, but I want to just take you back to Mark and his dad in the garage. I just want to close with that, with that scene. And Mark grew up, uh, you know, as a 10 year old kid at that point, he had watched his mom and dad live according to God's principles in the home. And that had in so many ways that he probably couldn't even describe that had shaped him. Mm-hmm. He had watched it play out. He'd watched his mm-hmm. dad be a man of God in the world that his dad lived in, in the, in the butcher shop. Yeah. And his dad in spending time with him, just hanging out, being father, son on a fishing trip, his dad had a, uh, had a pointed question about what God was doing in Mark's life. Yeah. And his dad asked him a, a question on, on purpose, an intentional question. Uh, and that right there was the thing that, that sparked for you a moment of surrendering your life to the Lord. I, and I just want to like, I just want to paint that as a picture of what spiritual leadership looks like in the home. Right. There's time, intentional time spent with his son, intentional asking of questions and a living out of God's principles in the home that yeah. th- there's it's profound in the ways in which it's simple. Yeah. And I think that for men to capture that image right there uh, as a picture of spiritual leadership, man, I hope that sticks with you. Yeah. Uh, we have gone a little long today. <laughs> Mark, okay. thank you so much. Gosh, it's been good. Uh, we, we will definitely be doing a part two because there's so much about the church. We, we didn't even get into that. There's so much yeah. about the church that's interesting and we we will get into that. Um, man, any ways that this has encouraged you or impacted you, don't forget to reach out to us. Uh, you can do that uh, by just tapping us on the shoulder and telling us mm-hmm. uh, or you can send us a, an email. That email is stc at fredoniahill.org. Yeah, I didn't set you up as good on that one. But anyway. <laughs> we just went straight uh, into it. We just, just went straight into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But thanks for sticking around, and uh, we will see you on the next episode. Adios. Adios.